Testament, we've made it through so far, two sessions of our Without a King series. This is week three of this series. We'll be in Judges chapter eight today. My wife loves peanuts, and I'm not talking about the nuts. I'm talking about the comic strips and the movies that feature Snoopy and good old Charlie Brown. Well, if you're familiar with the Peanuts comic strip, then you know that time and time again, Charlie Brown wants to kick a football. And his friend Lucy will hold the ball, and he'll come running to kick it, and at the last moment, she'll pull the ball away, and he'll go flying up there and land flat on his back. Well, over the years, Charlie Brown has come to realize that Lucy cannot be trusted, and eventually he says... Listen, I know that you can't be trusted, and I, it doesn't bother me so much that you pulled the ball away and that you can't be trusted, but that you think I'm that stupid that I'm going to keep trying to do it. And so she says, here's a signed document that I will not pull the ball away. And he says, well, okay. So he goes to run and kick the ball, and at the last moment, Lucy pulls it away, and he goes flying up the air and falls flat on his back. Because Lucy cannot be trusted. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. At this point in the book of Judges, we have seen that so far the stories were pretty short. At this point, Gideon's story takes up three chapters. And as we see the story of his son, we're going to also incorporate that into our story. So we're going to actually look at a total of four chapters today. So if I go along, you know why. No, just kidding. But you would think, as we're studying these judges, these judges have been raised up by God to lead and to deliver the people of Israel. You'd think that they would be somebody of noble character. You'd think that they would be somebody who acts in a godly way, but almost every judge that we see is terribly flawed. And from this point forward, from, from uh, Gideon forward, we see the story gets darker and darker and darker as Israel devolves further and further into their sin and into chaos and violence. These judges that were supposed to come and be saviors, be deliverers, they began to look more like mobsters. And we'll see that if Israel places their faith in these judges, that faith is sorely misplaced. So today we're going to examine the story of Gideon and see how the people place their faith, place their trust in the wrong person and how that ends for them. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for the promises that you have in it for us, and for the examples that we have for it in us. So, Lord, I pray that as we examine this story this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to what the Spirit has to say to us. Lord, that you would stir our hearts to respond in faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen. All right, so many of you are probably familiar with the story of Gideon. You may have heard the story of Gideon in Sunday school. You may have watched the VeggieTales special, Gideon Tuba Warrior. But here's what we're going to see. Gideon begins, his story begins in the book of Judges chapter 6. And we see when we first encounter him that he is a fearful citizen. But as we follow his story, he moves from fearful citizen to fearless agent of God. When we last saw Israel, they were faithfully following after God for a time after 
Barak and Deborah and Jael led them to victory over the Canaanites. And that lasted for a generation, but then as we get into Judges chapter 6, they have turned away from following Yahweh again, and they began to worship these Canaanite gods. And so God sends judgment upon them through the tribe of Midian, the people of Midianites. And so uh, these Midianites, they were nomadic marauders. So they would travel around, and they would come in, and they would take from what somebody else had worked hard to establish. And so they had these camels. They had these numerous camels, which was kind of a new thing in this area at this time, these domesticated camels. It's kind of like the humvees of the day. Like they, they were fast, they were quick, they could come in and, and take the produce of the fields before Israel could do anything about it. And so they would come in and they would take their harvest and then they would disappear back out into the desert. And if you've ever seen the Disney Pixar movie A Bug's Life, here's what I'm picturing when I read this. The ants have all been hard at work gathering the food, getting it all prepared, and then the grasshoppers come in and they say, give us your food, and they take it and they leave. And then they go back to their place and party. Well, here they come in and they demand the food, they take the food, and they, they become a blight on the people of Israel. So much so that these caves that are all over Israel, they begin to hide their food in those caves. After seven years of this, of being stricken with extreme poverty, the people of Israel call out to the Lord. Finally, they call out to the Lord, and then he raises up Gideon. When we're first introduced to Gideon, he's a young man who's hiding from the Midianite. He's afraid of them. He's trying to thresh wheat in a wine vat. Have you ever tried to use the wrong tool for the purpose you're trying to do? Trying to use a screwdriver and a hammer doesn't work that well? Well, he's trying to thresh wheat in a wine press, and that's not going that well. But an angel of God appears to him and says, Hey, you are, God has called you to be a mighty warrior. And young Gideon looks at him and says, if God's with us, then where is he? Why is all these bad things happening to us? Why did the Midianites oppress us if God is with us? And the angel tells Gideon that God is going to use him to deliver them from the Midianites. And so he's not too sure about that. He brings all these excuses and he wants to test God. But eventually Gideon realizes that God is indeed calling him to deliver Israel from Midian. But before he can deliver them from Midian, Gideon realizes he has to first deliver Israel from themselves. And so the first heroic act that we see of Gideon is that he goes back to his father's house, where his father has set up an installation for the city to come and to worship the Baals and the Asherahs. And so he goes to that area, but he's afraid to go during the day. So he goes at night, he goes and he cuts down the Asherah poles, he tears down the altar, and then he runs away and hides. Well, the people come out the next morning and they find their, their idol worship center has been destroyed, and so they begin questioning people and asking, and they find out that it was Gideon who did it. And so they say he needs to be put to death, he needs to be killed because of what he has done against Baal and Asherah. But his father, who was the leader of this pagan cult says, hold up, 
if Baal is really as powerful as we think he is, Baal will take care of him. So, we see Gideon gets a little bit of confidence. He got away with it, right? But then Gideon is called to bring all the people together to go to war against Midian. But again, he's afraid. And so he brings these tests to the Lord, this, this fleece that he wants to have it be wet when it's dry around it and then have it dry when it's wet around it. And so he does this testing with God. But once again, God proves himself, as he does, to Gideon. So Gideon gathers about 32,000 men, warriors, together to go fight the Midianites. And in chapter 7, we see God says, this is too many. In fact, if you would, look at 7 and verse 2 with me real quick, because this is important. Come back to us again later. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you, or else Israel might brag, I did it myself. Right? So this will be important later. So... Gideon begins to follow these tests that God has set, and they, they whittle down to where instead of 32,000 men, they have 300 men, 300 warriors. And so Gideon divides these 300 men into three camps of 100 each. He gives them a trumpet each and a, a torch and a pitcher. And they surround the Midianites on three sides, and when Gideon gives the call... They all blow their trumpets and they smash their jars. They raise their torches. And the Midianites are thrown into confusion. They're afraid. What's going on? We're surrounded on all sides. And they begin to flee. And in their confusion, the Lord, it says, causes them to attack one another. And so the Midianite troops are decimated by their own hand. But notice what they said as they were shouting and blowing their trumpets. They said, a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. And we're going to come back to that here in just a minute, but I want you to have that in your mind, that the Lord said, there's too many men. Israel will claim victory for themselves. And the men shouted, a sword for Yahweh, but they also included for Gideon. Well, as the enemy is running away. Gideon leads forces. They capture two of the leaders and they slay them. But they miss two of the main leaders, the kings. And so Gideon, at this point, is pursuing these two kings. And this is where I want us to pick up in Judges 8 and verse 4. Judges 8 and verse 4. Gideon and the 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. That is the Jordan River. They exhausted, but were still in pursuit. He said to the men of Succoth, Please give some loaves of bread to the people who are following me, his men, because they are exhausted. For I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. But the princes of Succoth asked, Are Zeba and Zalmana now in your hands, that we should give bread to your army? And Gideon replied, Very well. When the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalmana over to me, I will trample your flesh on thorns and briars from the wilderness. And he went from there to Penuel and asked the same thing from them. And the men of Penuel answered just as the man of Succoth had answered. 
And he also told the men of Penuel, When I will return in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now, as we're going through, we're going to see some red flags about Gideon and his character. Here's the first one. Red flag number one is he has some threats against his fellow Israelite tribes. So at this man, at this point, Gideon and his men have been doggedly pursuing the Midianites all over Israel, and they've gotten to the edge of Israel and had to cross the Jordan River to get to the other side where there are the Transjordan tribes, those that are on the opposite side of the Jordan River from the rest of Israel. And so he comes to these Israelite tribes and he says, we've been pursuing these people all over Israel, and now they've gone through your, your territory into their own. And so we're tired, we're hungry, can you give us some food? And they kind of react with uh, a glibness and hatred toward them. Uh, both of the people of Succoth and Penuel, they, they re- reject his request and kind of mock him, saying, well, do you have these enemies? And there seems to be this kind of general Transjordan attitude toward Gideon. And I think there's something to that, and we'll look at that here in just a minute. But the question is, so far, God has used Gideon to liberate the people of Israel. So why do these people that are on the other side of the Jordan not want to help him in pursuing these people, these enemies? And their questions toward him seem to indicate that they're afraid in one sense. They were concerned that if they helped and they kept he failed to capture them, then the Midianites would come back and attack them and they wouldn't have any defenses because they're not in Israel. But notice Gideon's response to them. It's not what you would expect from a godly judge. See, what he should have said is, I know it may be hard to believe that we can beat these people, that we can capture them, but God is using us to win the battle and in fact we already have slain many of their people. They killed themselves because of what God had done. So don't trust in my strength and don't trust in my power to defeat them, but trust in God's power, in God's plan. But notice what Gideon says instead. He says, You dare doubt me? I'll show you what power looks like when I get back. You will learn to respect me. How dare they question Gideon? So instead of assuring them of God's power, Gideon threatens them. Well, let's continue reading and see what happens. Verse 10. Now Zeba and Zalmanah were in Karkor, and with them was their army of about 15,000 men, who were all those left of the entire army of the Kedemites. Those who had been killed were 120,000 warriors, so very small number left. And Gideon traveled on the caravan route east of Noba and Jog. Jogbada, and attacked their armies while they were unsuspecting. Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and Gideon pursued them. He captured the two kings of Midian, and he routed the entire army. And then in verse 13, Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's. He captured a youth from the men of Succoth and interrogated him, and the youth wrote down for him the names of the 77 princes and elders of Succoth. Then he went to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zalmanah. You taunted me about them, saying, Are Zeba and Zalmanah now in your power that we should give bread to your exhausted men? So, here we see red flag number two. 
because we're going to see what happens here in just a second. But Gideon continues. He captures the enemy. He brings them back to these tribes who have refused to give him supplies. He's afresh from his victory. He's had great success. But sometimes success is not the greatest thing that we can have. Now, imagine a man who works extremely hard at his job because he needs to prove himself through financial success. That's how he determines success is how much money do I make? What is the worst thing that can happen to a man like that? You may say career failure. That's the obvious answer, right? If he places his faith and his trust in his money and he gets that through his career, but then his career fails, then what a failure. But someone who is basing their happiness and their identity on their work and on their career and on their finances will be completely devastated by career failure, but at least through that failure they may learn to stop idolizing their career advancement. I think the worst thing that can happen to a man like that is career success. Because success confirms his belief that he can fulfill himself, that he can take care of his own needs, take care of his own life, and he'll become more and more of a slave to his success and to his money than if he had failed. He'll begin to feel proud and superior. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Well, here's what happens with Gideon. His success goes to his head, and he comes back to those cities who he had asked for supplies from earlier, and they kind of mocked him, and he made some threats against him, and we're going to find those were not idle threats. For when Gideon comes back, he doesn't come back as this warrior, but he comes back as a conqueror. Notice the way the narrator changes the way he speaks of Gideon. So just saying Gideon now, he says, Gideon, son of Joash. He uses this formula of a king, a formula of a conqueror, a formula of a tyrant. And in verse 16, see what happens. Gideon took the elders of the city. He took some thorns and briars from the wilderness. And it says, he disciplined the men of Succoth with them. In other words, he beat them with briars and with thorns. And in verse 17, he also tore down the tower of Penuel, their defensive tower, and he killed all the men of the city. So now he's moved from threats to violence against the Israelite tribes. He beat the leaders of Succoth. He claimed that he's teaching them a lesson. How dare they refuse his request? And then when he comes to Penuel, he, he just kills them all. That's that way they'll learn, right? Now, remember, though, this is Gideon. This is a judge. This is a deliverer chosen by God, raised up to deliver the people from their enemies, to deliver them from the oppression of the Midianites. But now Gideon has turned to using interrogation on these young men. He used torture, and then he executes his people because they won't help him fight his war. But what's more, look at what happens next. Verse 18. He asked Zebah and Zalmanah, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? They were like you, they said. Each resembled the son of a king. So he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Then he said to Jether, his firstborn, Get up and kill them. 
The youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. In verse 21, Zeba and Zalmanah said, Get up and kill us yourself, for a man is judged by his strength. So Gideon got up, killed Zeba and Zalmanah, and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So Gideon has moved from being a fearful citizen to being a fearless agent of God, and here he moves, continues on this path to become a brutal aggressor against his people. When he questions the kings of Midian, we find out the reason why he was so determined in pursuing them was because they had killed his family. It wasn't because of God's righteous war driving out the the Midianites. It was a a blood vengeance upon these men. It was not because of his desire to complete the plan that God had for him to deliver Israel, but because he needed to take care of the honor of his family. And he was simply using the Lord's name to try to sanctify his own personal vendetta. And he began to break the third commandment by using the Lord's name in such a way. But because of the desire to restore his family's honor... Gideon asks his oldest son to kill the kings. He wants to humiliate them by having them slain by a mere boy. But then we find Jether is too afraid to kill the kings. And I don't know about you, but as I read this, I feel kind of sorry for the son. He's a picture of what Gideon had been at one time. He's young, he's fearful, hiding from the Midianites. An innocent that was too afraid to spill the blood of these men. But Gideon had developed a stomach for violence. It becomes a brutal, bloodthirsty tyrant, not only against his enemies, but against his own people. Gideon's actions should have been red flags for the people of Israel. You don't want this guy as a leader. They should have learned about Gideon's true character now, but we find that they were impressed by his achievements. And notice what they do in the next verse, verse 22. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you have delivered us from the power of Midian. Now we've been talking about that they were without a king, but now they're trying to offer a kingship. The people of Israel unite together for the wrong reason. They offer Gideon a dynastic reign. They want not only him, but his son and his grandsons to be king. And there's some problems with this because the book of Deuteronomy laid out how a king is supposed to be chosen. First of all, the king is supposed to be chosen by God. And here, God's not involved in this process at all. They just come and say, be our king. People chose it. They don't give God a second thought. They immediately want to look like these surrounding powerful nations. Not just having a king, but having a dynastic king that passes from generation to generation. Furthermore, we see the reason that they offer him this kingship is not because of divine mandate, but because Gideon had delivered them from Midian. But remember back in 7, in verse 2, the reason that God had not allowed more than 300 men was so the Israelites would not claim victory as their own, but would be solely as God's. But look what happens here. They don't say anything about God. 
They say, Gideon, you were the one who delivered us from Midian. They claim Gideon is the one who has the victory. And furthermore, we find that offering Gideon the kingship wasn't exactly their plan, but Gideon was already acting like the kings of Canaan. So they're just really seeking to formalize what Gideon was doing. And we're going to see more about what he was doing here in just a moment. But he was conquering the enemy ruthlessly, and he was treating his own people harshly. But notice how Gideon responds. Verse 23. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Okay, so despite his flaws, Gideon points out a truth here. He says the people of Israel, they don't need a king to obey. They need to obey the king that they have. They need to obey the Lord. He is to rule over them. But with his words, he's a appears to defer to Yahweh, but notice he didn't correct the people about their understanding of who delivered them from the Midianites. He was okay with claiming victory. There's a good lesson, I think, in choosing a leader here because we're easily impressed by someone's qualities. We're easily impressed by their deeds, these things that are not important to God. We're easily swayed by more pragmatic concerns. See, God doesn't prize a person's popularity. He doesn't prize a person's humor or a person's academic credentials. God chooses people who will follow him. He wants men who will hold to his truth and who will seek him in godliness. That's the kind of men he wants to lead churches. He wants those kind of men and not ones who are chosen for the wrong reasons and those who possess the wrong qualities. So church, as you're looking for a pastor, remember what we learn in the story of King David. God looks not at the outward appearance of a man, but at his heart. Does he have the right godly qualities? He may not look great on a resume. He may not look great in person. But if he's got the right heart, he follows after God. That's the right guy. But notice that instead of giving credit to the victory to God, Gideon instead alludes to this vague idea that God should rule over Israel. See, here's the reality. Gideon knew something intellectually. He understood that God should be king over Israel, but it didn't really grip his heart. He understood the doctrines of grace and and truth and rule, but... Though he could give the right answers, his heart did not really understand what that meant. There is this gap between what Gideon said and what Gideon did. His actions didn't line up with his words. And Gideon's mistake was a failure to live out what he knew to be true. That God is king. But instead, though he says, I don't want to be king, God should be king. We see he begins to act just like a king would. Look at verse 24. He said to the men, Let me make a request of you. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites, and they said, We agree to give them. So they spread out a mantle, and everyone threw an earring from his plunder on it. 
And the weight of the gold earrings he requested was about 43 pounds of gold in addition to the crescent ornaments and ear pendants, the purple garments of the kings of Midian and the chains on the necks of their camels. So it's easy to kind of overlook this because we don't really understand ancient cultures that well uh, for most of us. But this was a symbolic gesture that by asking these men to surrender some of their gold that they had gotten, they were submitting to his leadership. This was a, a purchase agreement, in a sense. They submit to him and give him a tribute. And that tribute comes out to be a lot of gold. <laughs> and so now Gideon takes on these characteristics of a king. He, he has these men who are in submission to him. He has a royal treasury and further, he retains the symbols of, of royalty from these other Midianite kings. But then notice in verse 27, he goes even further. Gideon made an ephod from all of this, and he put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Then all Israel prostituted themselves with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So now he assumes the role of a sponsor of a cult, like a king in Canaan. He crafts this ephod, which becomes an object of pagan worship. He creates his own image, and he clothes it with pagan materials, and he says, let's worship over here. And it's sad to see this man who his first heroic act had been to overthrow his father's idol, create another one. But in making his own copy, Gideon essentially sets up his hometown as as the rival place of worship to Yahweh. He says, I want people to come here for guidance. I want people to see my hometown as a place where God can be found. I want Gideon to be glorified. So Gideon uses God to consolidate his own position instead of using his position to serve and honor God. And unfortunately, the whole nation followed him. They worshiped this new God that Gideon had created. But God is faithful, even when, we're, when we aren't. Notice what happens in verse 28. Midian was subdued before the Israelites, and they were no longer a threat. The land was peaceful 40 years during the days of Gideon. So during the generation of Gideon, people followed the Lord. The people, though, attributed Gideon with the benefit of victory and peace. The narrator shows it's a divine action. Human lips should have been praising Yahweh like Barak and Deborah did in chapter 5. But instead, we see silence. In fact, from this point forward in the story, we don't hear anything else about God from the characters within the story. But notice how this ends. Verse 29. Jerubbabel, that is, Gideon, son of Joash, went back to live at his house. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, since he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Then Gideon, son of Joash, died at a ripe age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash at Ophrah of the Abarazites. When Gideon died, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves with the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. The Israelites did not remember their Lord, their God, who had delivered them from the power of the enemies around them. And they did not show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, 
for all the good that he had done for Israel. So as we close out Gideon's life, we see that he continued to act like a Canaanite king. He established his house. He made a large harem for himself. He fathered numerous children. And we see that he even ignored Deuteronomy's prohibitions. He took a Canaanite wife, a Canaanite concubine, and had a son by her, and that son's name is Abimelech, which is translated, the king is my father. Although he said, I don't want to be king, the Lord should be king, he names his son, the king is my father. While having won deliverance for his people with this spectacular victory over the Midianites, Gideon began to act like it was achieved by the sword of Gideon and not by the sword of the Lord. And before long, thy kingdom come was replaced with my kingdom come. And the servant of Israel became their tyrant. And unfortunately, this old adage, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts uh, absolutely often is found also in the church. We face the temptation to exchange the divine purpose that God has given to us and to make it an agenda of personal ambition. We want to become leaders in the church so people will look at us and say, oh, look how great they are. We want to make the church about us and what makes us feel good, what makes us comfortable, instead of making it about leading people to Jesus. And let's see what happens when we take our focus take our trust, and place it in the wrong place. If you look in the next chapter, Gideon's son, Abimelech, by a concubine, convinces the people of Israel to choose him as their king. He has no qualms about being called king either. And in fact, he does what many Canaanite kings do. There's other people who could challenge his right to the throne. So what does he do? Kills nearly all of them. There was only one that survived. He kills all of his half-brothers so they can't claim the throne. And then, as he continues to rule, he leads the people into a civil war. There's fighting back and forth in the people of Israel. And eventually, it takes two more judges... Tola and Jair to deliver Israel from themselves. And that only lasts for a generation. Remember, so far it's been this one led and it was for a generation. This one brought peace for a generation. This one brought peace for two generations. Well, this one, it took two judges to bring peace for one generation because they were so far away from God at this point. Remember Israel's situation here. They are cohabitating in the promised land with the people that they have been commanded to drive out They are intermarrying with the natives, which God had told them not to do. They repeatedly leave God to worship other gods, and they end up enslaved to those idols, and they end up enslaved to the people associated with them. And then they cry out to God. God sends a judge, and they are stuck in the cycle of sin. And as you can imagine, they want out. They want out of the cycle. They're tired of it. They want to be done with it. But instead of recognizing that they need to turn to God... They think, well, if we can just create some kind of stable, human-made government, if we can just bring a king and establish a dynasty, he will give us leadership that we need. And so they ask Gideon, let's create this dynastic kingship. 
and they misplace their hope in man instead of in God. And the cycle continues. In fact, it gets worse and worse and worse. And we're going to see that as we continue on in the book of Judges. But here's my question for you this morning. Where have you misplaced your trust? Have you misplaced your trust by placing it in other people? Let me tell you this, people will fail you. People will let you down. Have you misplaced your trust in your own works? The Bible says that your own works cannot accomplish your salvation. They can't bring you any closer to God. There's only one thing that will fix that, one person who can fix that, and that's Jesus and what he did on the cross. He's already paid the penalty for you. If you trust in him, then he will reunite you with God. He is the only person in whom you can properly place your trust. So if you place your trust in, trust in Jesus, the Bible says that he will never forsake you, he will never leave you. And even when we couldn't place our faith and trust in him, when we were too weak to care, too lost in our sin, to know which way to turn, Jesus died for you. It's easy to see how other people let us down. As, in fact, our own lives are continually falling and failing meet God's standard. But Jesus was perfect and he met it. We need to see that our worth isn't found in what we've done. It's not found in other people. But it's found solely in the love of God that is higher than any mountain, deeper than any sea. So much so that he sent his only begotten son so that none should perish but have eternal life in him. Don't misplace your trust by putting it in anybody but Jesus. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I want you to do that today. If you would, please stand with me. We're going to have a time of response to the word of the Lord. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to ask our musicians to come up, please. Father, we thank you.